Welcome to London Lopate at Large. I'm London Lopate. Retired Army Lieutenant Colonel Daniel M. Gay joins us now. He is the co-author with Daniel Xing Huang of Wounding Warriors, How Bad Policy is Making Veterans Sicker and Poorer, in which they argue, using a wealth of data, that our system of caring for veterans is broken. Daniel Gade knows a lot about the system because he lost a leg in combat. His military awards and decorations include the Legion of Merit, Bronze Star, Two Purple Hearts, the Combat Action Badge, Ranger Tab, Presidential Service Badge, and both Airborne and Assault and Air Assault Wings. He's now an adjunct lecturer in public administration and policy at American University. Their book is published by Ballast Books and Daniel, happy Veterans Day. Also to you and your veteran friends. You, you uh, write about two Army veterans, Jeff Kispert, who served two terms as an infantry soldier in Afghanistan, moved home to the Midwest, graduated from college and landed a secure job in a utilities firm, and Matt Jackson, who'd fought alongside Jeff, left the Army at the same time, was uh, moved back to North Carolina, Jeff thrived, but by the time he was in his 30s, Matt was unemployed and dependent on government checks. How is that the fault of the Veterans Administration policies? Well, you know, it's funny because, uh, well, let me, let me back up here and say the roots of this book go back to when I was personally in the hospital. I was going to uh, get to that, quite, of course. Yeah, no, 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 of course, but I, I just want to start there. I think it's okay. a, important to start from a perspective setting. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, w- I spent a year in the hospital, basically. I was wounded twice in combat. And the second time I was wounded, I ended up losing my right leg at the hip. And so while I was recovering, what I saw in my fellow veterans was uh, a growing dependency on others. And part of it was the system. The system was encouraging people, hey, you know, whatever's wrong with you, make sure you apply for it. Make sure you get as much disability payments as you can. Make sure you get as much free stuff as you can. And what happens when people uh, embark on that journey is they depart more and more and more from the idea of work being central to their identity. And for Matt and Jeff, the protagonists of this book, what uh, and the book, again, is Wounding Warriors, available on woundingwarriors.com. These guys are the protagonists of this book. Um, both of them, by the way, are the protagonists of the book. Both of them are the heroes of the book because both of them are truly servants of America, servants of the Constitution. The villain in the book is the system that causes Matt to be worse off and causes Jeff, when he avoids it, to avoid some really uh, pretty unpleasant pitfalls in this in his recovery. Well, the system began after World War One. How much has it changed over the years? Was it better at one point? Well, so it might have been better suited for an industrial age economy. So you're correct. It started uh, its its modern roots go back to just post World War One. Its ancient roots go back to Abraham Lincoln's second inaugural address hmm. when he says that you know it's the responsibility of the government to care for. For him who shall have borne the battle and for his widow and his orphan is the, is the famous quote. And so the, the ancient roots go back that far. The modern roots, as you said, are right after World War I. And, and they were designed for an industrial age economy. I'll just give you a, a very clear example. Um, I have a Ph.D. I have a master's degree. I have an undergraduate degree. I've, I've you know, been in the Army for many years. I've been a Well, you got them all after you left the Army, right? 
Well, no, 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 no. The master's and the PhD oh. were both while I was in the army. Okay. So what's interesting is the the way that the industrial age economy model applies to me as a hip level amputee. It says, well, this is an industrial age system. So with a hip level amputation, you can't be a farmer. You can't really be a very good factory worker because mm-hmm. it's hard to carry things and it's hard to lift hay bales and all that stuff. And so it says. To me, as, as somebody who's been very successful, it says, oh, no, no, you're 90% disabled just because of the amputation. It doesn't take any individual variability into account at all. But weren't you and also so my, encouraged to claim a brain injury and her hearing loss? Yeah, for sure. So that's a whole different uh, can of worms. The other, and I'll, I'll explain that in a second. So the, the idea that, uh, that somebody is defined by their disability is an old idea, and it's not, it, it's not relevant in, a, in an information age economy as we have now. And it also doesn't take into account personal variation. You know, um, the difference between, you know, me and somebody else with the same level of amputation is, is, you know, potentially pretty dramatic based on family support, based on educational history, based on all of those things. The other thing that's happened here is what we call bracket creep, which is the idea that uh, more and more and more and more and more things are getting defined as disabilities, even though they are non-disabling conditions. I'll give you some examples. So um, the VA's number one condition that it rates every year, number one most rated condition is tinnitus, which is simple ringing in the ears. You know, some people, when they're when they're at rest in a quiet room, they hear a, a, a high-pitched uh Wheel sound, and that's that's normal for certain ages. It's normal for people who've been around, you know, noise exposure. But it's it's pretty um, it's it's very common. It's it's not an unusual thing to have, and it's not weird, and it's certainly not a disability. The VA rates it as its number one disability. Wow. Um, another one that's crazy to me, and and I think probably uh, and actually statistically speaking, about twenty percent of the people who can hear my voice right now have this condition. It's called sleep apnea. Sleep apnea is a uh, disruption of the sleep cycle that's caused by basically, uh, think of it as like severe snoring. Well, the treatment for sleep apnea is a uh, positive pressure breathing machine, what's called a CPAP. And if you are a veteran and you have a positive pressure breathing machine prescribed for your sleep apnea, that's considered to be, get this, a 50% disability, 5-0%, which is higher than loss of an eye. It's higher than loss of a leg below the knee. It's higher than loss of a hand. And so we're to believe that severe snoring is, is somehow not only simultaneously the responsibility of the government, but also more severe than those kinds of, of amputations and, uh, you know, loss of an eye that I just talked about. So... The system is full of that kind of, I mean, packed full of that kind of absurdity. And so what it does fundamentally is takes every veteran who applies and says, oh, yeah, because of your disability, because of your condition, we are going to rate you. We're going to make you dependent on government. And that's ultimately what makes veterans uh, both sicker and poorer. But... uh in your case, okay, after you were hurt in 2005, you spent five months in the hospital, including the amputation, then six months as an outpatient, and then you got back to work and got a master's and a Ph.D. while you were on active duty. You taught at West Point for many years, and after you retired 
As a lieutenant colonel in 2017, you accepted a political appointment as a senior advisor at the U.S. Department of Labor's Veterans Employment and Training Service. Um, I don't imagine that that sort of option, those options are available to most vets, even the ones who aren't hurt as much as you were. Well, I, I mean, mean you're a very ambitious man. All, That's isn't that. Well, I don't. Not everybody is can be that ambitious. And on well, top of it all, you are a competitive uh, cyclist, as I understand. You yeah, know. yeah. So am, ambition, though, ambition is an individual level trait, right? So, you know, anybody can choose to um, choose to improve themselves, and that's all I did, right? And and part of that, I'll just tell you a story, and I I think it uh, will ring true to a lot of people. So. When I was in the hospital, uh, you know, I'm flat on my back. I had 40 surgeries. I was in, in, in the intensive care unit for months. And, you know, my wife, we'd been married at that point five years. We had a two-year-old. Um, my wife came to me very early on in the when I became conscious after about three weeks. And she said, look, Daniel, um, I'm, I'm going to take – I will take over everything. I will do everything for our family. I will do our taxes. I'll do our bills. I will – take care of our daughter. I will feed our family, like all of it. I'll take care of everything. But as soon as you can get better, you are responsible for all of that. And so that, just that family support gave me a very, very strong um, incentive to be better and to make myself better. Because remember, for men, we derive, men derive their identities from their work. Um, women typically derive their identities from their work, their family, and their marriage, or their, you know, the work, the children, and marriage. Men derive their identity almost solely from their from their work. And so, for my wife to say to me, "Look, you are responsible for providing for our family," that that reaffirmed my identity and underlined my responsibility. But for a lot of veterans, what they fall prey to is believing the lie that they should quit working because they got scuffed up one time in, in combat or in training or just by the, by the, you know, but, by life. And so they, and so they quit working. And, but, and so but, I, but not, I have to I'm, stop you for a second. There are women also sure. in combat and women also get terrible injuries. Wouldn't they have the same kind of experience you had? Or is the fact that they're a woman still a, a determining factor in how they respond. Oh, yeah, sure. And I, 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 I appreciate that you allowing me to clarify. Of course, women get hurt in combat. Um, you know, I'm, I, I was actually in the hospital with now United States Senator Tommy, Tammy Duckworth. She and I, uh, very similar injuries about two months apart from mm-hmm. when she was shot down in November of 04, and I was blown up in January of 05, both in Iraq. So Tammy and I know each other very well, or Senator Duckworth and I know each other very well, and um, have experienced many of the same struggles, I'm sure. Um, and, you know, I've got a couple of other uh, women friends who've experienced serious combat injuries, uh, you know, Purple Heart-type serious injuries. Uh, the reason I focus on men is because about 85% of the veteran population is is male, and so I just wanted to make the point that that identity shift that can occur when somebody is separated from their labor, is particularly exacerbated in men. It's, it's, it's a little worse in men than it is in women. 
You're a competitive cyclist, as I mentioned earlier. Didn't you become the Paralympic world champion in the 2010 Ironman <laughs> uh, in Clearwater, yeah. Florida? George Bush, George W. Bush, described cycling with you as unbelievable because he said you rode with one leg navigating some really tough trails. You, you're a, uh, somebody who's probably more driven than most people. Forgive the terrible yeah. pun. Yeah, well, well, sure. You know, I, I think that's true. You know, obviously I'm... Uh, I've got a pretty hard head, and I'm pretty stubborn, and I like to do hard things. Um, but what the what the book Wounding Warriors is really about is about systems that take veterans overall and make them worse off. You know, I, I think that had there been, uh, I, I think that I'm the sort of person who would try to thrive no matter what circumstances are thrown at me. But a lot of veterans uh, really can get derailed by bad incentives and by bad policy and that's what that's what the book winning warriors is about it's not it's not a biography it's not an autobiography or a, or a biography it's a it's a book about policy that takes people like matt and makes their makes their train go in the ditch and we'll get into that in a bit more detail in just a moment you're listening to leonard lopate at large on wbai new york 99.5 fm streaming live at wbai.org my guest is daniel m gade who has written with daniel huang Wounding Warriors, How Bad Policy is Making Veterans Sicker and Poorer. The book is published by Ballast Books. Um, Aren't we talking about a relatively small number of veterans? Because when most of them leave the military, they aren't sick or wounded or have some kind of condition. Yeah, well, thank you for bringing that up. So um, about, get this, this is is probably going to blow your mind, about half of veterans who leave the service right now, this year, about 250,000 veterans will leave military service. About half of them will claim disability. Wow. So because because they say that the VA health care system creates incentives for veterans to stay sick and poor? Well, well, yes, because if they claim disability, you know, some of them are, some of them are truly disabled. Sure, no problem, right? Some of them are claiming disability because the system encourages them to do so for minor or age-related conditions. So get this. The total number uh, – well, let me back up a second. When, you, when you're driving down the highway and you see a disabled veteran license plate or you're at the grocery store or whatever and you see somebody pull up with a disabled veteran license plate, what you're typically thinking in your mind – and when, when I just throw the word disabled veteran out to your listeners right now, they're thinking in their mind – amputations, burns, spinal cord injury, and blindness, right? I mean, those are kind of the sort of stereotypical, that's what combat does to you, right? Here's the problem. In 20 years of post-9-11 combat, we've had about 60,000 wounded in action total, averaging about 3,000 per year. This year alone, 250,000 people will enter the VA's disability roles as new recipients. 250,000, that's 100 times, almost 100 times, the annual toll of wounded in action, even through our most serious combat in, you know, sort of the 2004 to 2013 time frame in Iraq and Afghanistan. And here's another statistic from your book. That's an amazing number. It's an amazing number. Here's another statistic. Of about the 18 and a half million living veterans, uh, about 6 million of them, about one-third, are receiving disability compensation. And you say right. that that federal policy makes the nation's veterans sicker and poorer. So yeah, well, I, let me I, let me describe let me, let me describe how it makes them poorer. 
Um, it makes sense. Well, I'll do sicker first because sicker is even easier. So um, let's let's use the case of let's say mental illness. Uh, let's use depression, or for example, or PTSD. Right. What happens there is that those conditions, PTSD, is rated at zero percent, thirty percent, seventy percent, or a hundred percent, based on based on the number of uh, of uh, symptoms of it that you say that you have when you speak to your physician uh, who's doing the uh, evaluation. And here's the problem. All of the symptoms, none of them have, you know, obvious biological markers, right? It's not, it's, we're not talking about, you know, an amputation where you can say exactly, okay, look, this is, this amputation is this far below the elbow, right? Or above the elbow or whatever. It's not like that. It's a, it's a list of subjective symptoms. And it's easily downloaded off the Internet. So you can go right now on your computer and you can type in, what does it take to get 70% disability from the VA for PTSD? And you'll get a list of, of symptoms. If you literally take that list into the doctor and say, hey, doc, you know, I have, and you list the things, you know, I have flashbacks. I have, uh, you know, extreme reactions to sudden stimuli. I have erectile dysfunction. I have difficulty controlling my bowels. I have... You know, on and on and on. You can you can list these things out. What happens is, if you if you have zero percent disability, you get it noted in your file, but you don't get any payment for it. If you have thirty percent disability, you get about uh, seven hundred dollars a month. If you have seventy percent disability, you get about fifteen hundred dollars a month. And if you have a hundred percent disability, you get about thirty two hundred a month, depending on um, uh, dependent status and you know how many children and whether you have a spouse and all that. So the incentive is to either make yourself or to tell others that you are sicker than you actually are. And it's a clear incentive. It's not, it's not some theoretical thing. It's a real thing that we talk about and that, and that the people we interview talk about explicitly in our book. The, the clinicians that we interview talk about this. And so, so veterans are encouraged to present themselves to the world as being as sick as they can. So that's the sicker part. The poorer part is very interesting. It looks like this. Um, if you are, there's a certain kind of uh, payment that you can get from the VA called individual unemployability. And individual unemployability takes a veteran who has a one condition that's rated at 60% or two or more conditions rated together at 70% and compensates them at the 100% level provided, and this is the important part, provided that they don't work. Huh. So it explicitly separates a veteran from the labor market. So they're not we'll incentivizing you, people to get past it. They are actually incentivizing people to not get past it. 100% true. Yes, sir. Absolutely correct. And so get this. So if you exit the labor market and you sit at home on your couch, you can receive $3,200 a month. If you try to go back to work, your uh, your payment goes from $3,200 a month to about $1,500 a month. In other words, you take a $1,500 a month penalty just for trying to go back to work. And so for a veteran who is, let's say, a high school graduate who has, um, you know, some kind of physical or mental health condition that is uh, of various severity, and is trying to struggle through it and trying to like claw his way back into the labor market. He wants to go work at the, the you know, the public safety office for the county, or he wants to work at the 
elementary school as a as a entry level teacher or you know whatever it is right as soon as he goes back to work he takes that big penalty and so it's actually financially more beneficial for him to sit at home than it is to try to go back to work and so instead of earning let's say the median national income is about uh let's say fifty five thousand dollars a month right about five thousand a month um and of course, of course, that varies on geography and all of that stuff. But let's say five thousand a month. In order for him to get to the five thousand a month level, he's going to have to absorb the fifteen hundred dollar a month penalty that he gets. And so, it's easier for him to stay stuck at the three thousand level than to claw his way up to the five thousand, six thousand, twenty thousand level. Which means that he's trapped in what I call and what I can show on a graph, if you want, um, is uh, what's called a poverty trap. He's and, trapped in a poverty trap. And you point out that once you get a 100% disability determination for, for post-traumatic stress disorder from the VA, you're no longer required to go to any mental health appointments at all. So, uh, Isn't that amazing? So people uh, can fake it. Yeah, isn't it amazing? So, so think about this. You know, the VA, you know, famously, the VA uh, does not have enough providers for all the, the people who are seeking mental health treatment. And that's, you know, we, we can hire more providers and we can train more providers. And there's things we can do to as a country, and we should do this, because mental health conditions are more and more recognized and we need to take them seriously and all of that. But if once you receive 100% disability compensation from the VA, you're no longer required to seek mental health treatment at all. And so what that means is you've got veterans who are, um, who are really sick and who, are, who have convinced the VA and themselves and their spouses and everybody that they're really sick, but they don't have to try to get better anymore. And they can just float along for the next 30 or 40 years, e either if, it's, if they truly have a condition, either suffering in silence, or if they're faking it, they can you know, take that money to the bank and just be happy with themselves. Either way... There's no incentive for improvement. On the other hand, isn't there something of a suicide crisis with some of these uh, people? Yeah, for sure. And, and you know, suicide, um, you know, ultimately what Wounding Warriors, available at woundingwarriors.com, uh, I'll send you a signed copy if you order there, or you can get the audible, auto, audio book or the e-book or anything like that at Amazon if you like, but then Jeff Bezos keeps all the money. Um, anyway... That's one of the main reasons I wrote this book, to be honest with you, um, which is that the veteran suicide crisis is an absolute disaster. We have 22 veterans a day killing themselves across the country, and, and you know, suicide is a disease of despair. You know, suicide is a disease where when somebody uh, feels worthless, hopeless, and useless, that's when they uh, commit suicide. And the system that we have for disability benefits takes people who are otherwise productive citizens and convinces them that it's best to act worthless, hopeless, and useless. And then we all act surprised when veterans, uh, when veterans kill themselves, and we shouldn't. We should be aware of the fact that the incentives we've put in place are causing this to become reality. We should put, you, you give us some statistics. The total number of people wounded in action in Iraq and Afghanistan for 20 years is about 60,000. But last year, about 250,000 people went on disability compensation. That's four times more than the total number of wounded in those 20 years of war. Yeah, so part of it is, you know, 
part of it is that the American people have had the wool pulled over their eyes. And some of this is deliberate, right? So um, Delivered by whom? You know, well, deli- well, I'll tell you in a second. So it's the, the American people want to be fooled in this case because we all want to believe. You know, look, I'm a veteran, but I'm also a citizen. I'm also a citizen who admires veterans. And we all want to believe that every veteran is uh, a stainless example of selfless service, right? And so we want to be fooled, and so we allow ourselves to be fooled as citizens that that's true. So that's the first part, because some veterans are that way, but then some veterans are not, right? Not every veteran is a Medal of Honor recipient. Not every veteran is a uh, war criminal, but both exist in the population of veterans, right? So that's sort of part one. The, The population is easily fooled. But there's a political issue here, which is very, very interesting. And that is that um, the political left and right arrive at the same conclusion from different directions. And here's what I mean. The political left believes that every uh, veteran is basically an economic draftee and a victim of a system that uh, is exploitive in nature. And so, therefore, they deserve everything. The political right believes that anybody who ever looks at a uniform, whether they were a, a generator mechanic in the Coast Guard or whether they're a Navy SEAL with a Medal of Honor, like the guy I met the other day, um, they are uh, they're heroes, and so they deserve everything. And then there are these interest groups, veterans' interest groups, that stand under the everything tree and shake it for money. They go to Congress and they say, give benefits to veterans, give more benefits to veterans, give even more benefits to veterans. And the Congress is complicit in this problem because they just want to get reelected. They don't care necessarily about good policy. They just want to get reelected. And so they go along with these systems, even though behind closed doors, and I've talked to these people, left and right, Democrat and Republican, I've talked to these people behind closed doors, and they agree that there's a serious problem, but they feel... uh, um, not able to fix the problem because the interest groups are too powerful. Now, Max Cleland, who was also amputated uh, in the military, right. he, he served as a senator. Um, he, he was a Democrat. Uh, but I don't remember the issues that you address in this book being raised by uh, any political candidates, Republican or Democrat. Yeah, so... Um, Some people have talked about this openly. Most of the people who talk about this openly talk about it after they leave government service. So uh, I just had an interview the other day with uh, former VA Secretary Wilkie, um, who had been, you know, Secretary of the VA, and he talks about this stuff openly. Um, I've had the same conversation with three former VA secretaries who have all endorsed my book, Wounding Warriors, and the concepts in the book, Wounding Warriors, but all three, and it's kind of notable, all three did it after they left government service. And I think part of that is basically that um, when they're in those jobs, they feel politically trapped. And my point is to people like that and, and to other veterans who are listening to this who agree with me, like, look, if, if we don't speak up, then who's going to? It's got to be us that speak up. And so, um, and so it's, my, it's my goal to, uh, to continue to speak out about this and to tell the truth and to use my 
experience, research, intellect, and, and writing ability to, to really tell the truth about this stuff. Well, you're a Republican. Two years ago, you ran unsuccessfully against Mark Warner for U.S. Senate in Virginia, although you got a lot of votes. Should you have waited until this year when it appears that every Republican candidate in Virginia has won? Yeah, you know, that's funny. So um, I'm, uh, I'm a huge fan of the uh, governor-elect of Virginia. Governor-elect Glenn Youngkin is his name. He was a he was a great supporter of mine during my unsuccessful 2020 run for U.S. Senate, um, and I actually served on his campaign as the uh, director of coalitions. And I'm a huge, huge fan of his. So, um, if you, if anybody's out there looking for a presidential candidate for 2028, I have a front runner for you. His name is Glenn Youngkin. Um, but anyway, uh, I'm not so sure know, he would do well in New York State. But go, go ahead. Well, you know, look, look you don't. No Republican is going to win New York State for a while, right? Um, although Joe Biden is making it pretty pretty popular to be a Republican because of his, uh, well, you know, that, ongoing. That, that, I'm sorry, I don't want to get into the political side of this. Uh, we're talking about wounding well, warriors. Gotta, yeah, yeah, but but listen, here's the, here's the deal. The deal is that what we want is we, what we want is for politicians to tell the truth. We want politicians to serve us, and we want them to tell us the truth. Um, and. What this book is doing is giving members of Congress uh, the ability to tell the truth. And I, you know, I, um, I've given copies of this book and I've talked about this book to uh, Congressman Dan Crenshaw from, from Texas, who, you know, lost an eye in combat, almost lost his other, other eye, um, almost lost his life, actually. Um, I'm, uh, I'm aware of the fact that Tammy Duckworth, former U.S. Senator, or current U.S. Senator from Illinois, um, former U.S. Army helicopter pilot who lost uh, two limbs and almost a third in combat, uh, that she agrees with much of the principles of this book. I don't mean, I'm not speaking for her, but I know that she and I have talked about this kind of thing, and we, we basically agree on some of the problems. Um, so left and right... People are willing to tell the truth if we help them have the intellectual and um, sort of storytelling ammunition for this. And and part of it, part of the purpose of this book is to tell these sort of. I mean, it's a it's a policy book, but you've read it, and it doesn't read like a policy book. It reads like a very entertaining, interesting. Oh my gosh, is that true? Kind of book, and that's really what we were going for. We wanted to be a readable, truth-telling version of of what. Uh, of what things should look like. This is Leonard Lopit at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. Through these fields of destruction Baptisms of fire I've witnessed your suffering We're back with Daniel M. Gade, who's written a book with Daniel Huang called Wounding Warriors, How Bad Policy is Making Veterans Sicker and Poorer. It's published by Ballas Books. Um, now, 
you, uh, you made that point that uh, the nation spends more to keep veterans sick than it does uh, than to uh, make a better transition, um, and that those lines were crossed about two years ago. What happened then? Well, you know, the disability system has been growing in, uh, in size and in complexity. They've recently said, the VA has recently said that, uh, that, that Vietnam veterans who never served on, on ground in Vietnam, but who were part of the, uh, what's called the Blue Water Navy, that is to say they were deep water sailors who never even came close to Vietnam, um, that they are eligible for Agent Orange benefits. Uh, for things like type 2 diabetes, which is a condition largely attributable to uh, obesity. And has nothing to do with their military service. Well, there's some indications that people who are exposed to Agent Orange have a slightly higher degree of of, uh, diabetes. But the truth is, people who who are obese, especially people who are morbidly obese, have much higher... Uh, uh, rates of diabetes, and there's a lot of people in their 60s, 70s, and 80s who've, who've, uh, you know, gained enough weight to be in that category. And so, you know, it's easy to it's easy to blame shift. Part of the part of the problem here is, as a person, it's much easier to blame somebody else for what's wrong with you than it is to blame yourself. So, for example, the type two diabetes thing. If you if you have allowed yourself to get, let's say, 60 pounds overweight, and you have type 2 diabetes, which is easier, to, to look at yourself in the mirror and say, you know what, this is my fault. I need to, uh, you know, eat, eat, eat more healthily. I need to start working out. I need to get an exercise bike, whatever it is. Or to point your finger at the government and say, it's the government's fault that I'm sick. It's not my fault. It's Agent Orange's fault. You know, which is easier? Well, the obvious thing is it's easier to point your finger at somebody else, especially if you get paid to point the finger. On the other the hand, Agent Orange was a very destructive thing, and we're still, you oh, know, we're sure. still using it in the United States, even though it's illegal to use in the military. Yeah, I think um, uh, what's it called? Uh, uh, Roundup, I think. Yeah. Actually, Agent Orange is two chemicals, and I think Roundup is one of the two chemicals, yeah. if I'm not mistaken. But we're I, using I it for deforestation in some states, uh, mostly in the Northwest. I did oh, a show on it, so that? I know. I Oh, that's bizarre. I didn't know that. I'll, I'll, uh, I'll look for the show. And but people are but suffering yeah, so look, as a result. For sure. Agent Orange is nasty stuff. Let's be totally clear about that. I'm not saying it's good stuff. I'm saying that uh, a, Blue Water, a Blue Water Navy sailor was not exposed to Agent Orange. Mm-hmm. Um, just, it's just not yes. true. Uh, and, and, and a Blue Water Navy sailor that's now 70 pounds overweight and 75 years old uh, shouldn't be pointing the finger at the government for that for that uh, type two diabetes. Instead, he should be looking at saying, "Oh gosh, you know, what is it that I ought to be doing to make sure that I can live a healthy life for myself and my family going forward?" Don't we currently spend about one hundred thirty billion dollars a year on disability benefits? How does that compare to what we spend on health care, transition assistance, and all the other categories? Yeah, obviously you're uh, you're a close reader of of, uh, of the book, and I really appreciate that. Again, the book is Wounding Warriors, available at woundingwarriors.com or wherever books are sold. Yeah, so so uh, two years ago, and, and you asked me this question, and I accidentally glossed over it. 
two years ago or three years ago, these lines crossed where disability spending has been climbing over time. As we expand the definition of disability, we expand the number of disabilities available for compensation, and we uh, add the add numbers of people who are claiming disability, right? So disability payments are climbing over time. Well, that happened during the Trump payments. administration. As a Republican, does that concern you? Well, no, because the disability system has been uh, out of control, really. This isn't a Trump problem or it's not a Biden or Trump or or Obama or Bush or Bush or Clinton or any of those people. It goes all the way back to post-World uh, War I. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so every administration is complicit in this, let's be completely clear. Um, so, so, yeah, so disability, system, disability payments have been climbing over time. Healthcare payments have been declining over time as the number of veterans declined. So there are about uh, 10 years ago, there were about or 20 years ago, there were about 25 million living veterans. Now it's down to about 18 million as the uh, World War II and Korea generations uh, depart. And so the the healthcare spending has actually come down a good bit. And the or well, I'm sorry, it's climbing, but it's climbing slower than disability benefits. Because you're right, so, you're right. Uh, as a percentage, more veterans today are compensated right. for disabilities than ever before in the Department of Veterans Affairs history. Uh, so hasn't the number of veterans receiving disability benefits nearly doubled while the veteran population has decreased by one-third? That's right. That's 100% right. And, and if you think about those trend lines, so this is really interesting and sort of a historical note here that I think a lot of people find fascinating. So Dwight D. Eisenhower and Omar Bradley went to West Point together. They were West Point classmates. They knew each other very well as cadets, you know, in their 18, 19, 20-year-old time frame. And then both of them, of course, were, were five-star generals during World War II, um, both class of 1915 from West Point. So they both were in the, in the in, uh, First World War. They were both in the Second World War and uh, retired as five-star generals. Obviously, Eisenhower becomes president. And Omar Bradley, at the end of World War II, um, or really right after the Korean War, uh, Eisenhower calls Bradley and says, Bradley, I need you to do this for me. And Bradley's like, what? And, and, uh, and Eisenhower says, I need you to take over the department, or then it was the Veterans, uh, Veterans Department or something. It was called something else. Yeah, I need you to take this job on because we're about to demobilize, you know, 15 million people or whatever. And so Bradley takes over as the basically the VA secretary equivalent of the time. And he writes a famous report in 1956 called the Bradley Commission Report. He was the commission, he's the lead guy on this Bradley Commission Report. And the Bradley Commission Report really describes in vivid detail that what was hap- what's happening now in 2021 was already happening and was well entrenched by 1956, almost 70 years ago. And and it's really kind of, uh, if you read it, it's almost like he had a crystal ball and could look into the future because he's saying, he's saying um, eventually we're going to get to a place where people are seeking disability for for nonsense conditions and all this stuff, and, and uh, now we're in that place now. It's, it's really pretty remarkable. He predicted what was going to happen. Well, it was obviously there in in the uh, the system, even if uh, people were dealing with it differently. Uh, are people encouraged more to take advantage of this now than they were in the past? Yeah, for sure. So, so people, um, and I, I took the uh, uh, the liberty of googling you, so I know how old you are. 
um, people of your generation were were generally um, more self sufficient, more more dependent on their families and on their communities for support. Uh, my generation and later are more comfortable with the idea of demanding support through government programs, and so that's part of what's going on. The other part is that veterans themselves, or I guess I should say veterans ourselves, have normalized the idea of applying for disability as soon as they get out of the military. So, you know, you referred to it earlier, but when I was getting out, they wanted me to claim, the guy, the claims guy, wanted me to claim a bunch of stuff that's just not even true. He wanted me to claim that I had a brain injury. He wanted me to claim I had hearing loss. He wanted me to claim, you know, all this other stuff. And what's crazy about that is I don't have those conditions and I told him that but he said I don't care if you have those conditions claim them anyway and the reason I want you to claim them is so I can get you paid and I said and I made the case to him that this is a moral question Mm -hmm. that uh, for me to claim disabilities I don't have is morally no different from breaking into your house and rooting through your you know your wallet if I find it on the counter and as you point out, as a percentage, more veterans today are compensated for disabilities than ever before in the VA's history. And that's because they're being encouraged, as you were? Yes. Yes, that's right. They're, they're being encouraged. The, the uh, definition of disability continues to expand. And there's all these interest groups and, and individuals, including law firms and individual people who have these little companies that, that uh, quote-unquote, help veterans get what they've earned. Uh, that are basically, you know, built in, um, they're, they're manufacturing disabled veterans, you know, uh, every, every day, and they're getting paid a lot of money to do it because $130 billion is a lot of money, even if you spread it out over a lot of people. You're listening to Leonard Lopez at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. My guest is Daniel M. Gade who is co-author with Daniel Huang of Wounding Warriors, How Bad Policy is Making Veterans Sicker and Poorer. It is published by Ballast Books. And uh, you and, and Daniel Huang, who's a former Wall Street Journal reporter, interviewed dozens of veterans. What did they tell you? Same thing. I mean, all of these stories uh, are coming from veterans and from clinicians and from people who are involved in politics. And, you know, one of the, one of the people we interview for the book, uh, her real name is something else, but her book, her name in the book is Molly. We changed her name at her request. Um, she describes herself going through the system and feeling sucked in over time, feeling like she was, uh, yes, she was struggling with some things, but the VA's answer was always, oh, claim more, claim more, claim more. And eventually she describes herself as, as, quote, discarded government waste. Hmm. So the system trapped her and made her feel worthless. And, and it's a real shame. You know, I, I know who this person is, and I, I see her on LinkedIn and, and stuff like that. And this is a person who, uh, to be frank with you, is not thriving. And still to this day, she's not thriving, at least in part, because she was never given the help she needed. Instead, she was directed to uh, this disability system, which is so... Um, ill-formed and, and destructive. And the same thing is true for, for Matt in the, in the book. Matt is his actual first name. We changed his last name again to protect his privacy. But, but Matt had the same, same situation. He, uh, he believed what they told him at the, at the outbriefing 
that he should apply for everything, and then he found himself sucked into the disability system. You say that veterans were harsher toward the other veterans in the disability claims process than non-veteran claims processors were. Yeah, that's right. So, uh, and I actually, I don't remember where you, where you got that. That's uh, either your research is excellent or I wrote that someplace. Either way. You did write it someplace. Really awesome. I wouldn't have come up with it okay, on perfect. my own. Yeah, perfect. So, so um, my dissertation, I, I have a PhD in public policy, and my dissertation was on the, essentially on the VA claims process. And, you know, what we discovered, what I discovered in my dissertation was that, that in the claims process, the veteran claims, the veteran, the processors, the people who actually do the claims, uh, who are veterans, have a much more negative view of claimants than people who are non-veterans. And I think in part that's due to the idea that veterans basically see how the sausage is made and they don't want any part of it. One of the veterans asks, what kind of a system would do that, spend hours poring over a patient's ailments, diagnosing the patient, and then having nothing to offer when it comes to fixing the patient's problems? Yeah, yeah. So the, the, what he's referring to there is the idea that, or the fact, I'll say, that, the, um, that when you go in for a claims evaluation, the person who's doing the claims evaluation, let's say it's for a mental health condition, the psychiatrist or psychologist who's doing the claims paperwork, that person is not in a treatment role. In other words, you say, hey, I'm having suicidal thoughts, or hey, I'm having, you know, whatever, difficulty sleeping or hyper hyperactivity um, with respect to loud noises or something like that. Those people just put that down on the checklist. They don't, have, they don't give you any coping strategies. They're, they're not, their job is not to treat you at all. Their job is just to write down what's wrong with you. And so if you think about that, the healthcare side is completely separate from the disability side. The disability side is only to assign benefits, only to award people cash benefits. Um, and you don't even really need to interact with the healthcare side in order to get those, get those benefits in the first place. It's pretty remarkable. Um, and it's a, it speaks to a Congress, which is complicit. It speaks to a bureaucracy, which has grown out of control. And it speaks to the American people who uh, really, you know, today's Veterans Day. And the American people bear responsibility in part for fixing this system and for demanding reforms uh, of various kinds. And in the epilogue of, of Wounding Warriors, I described some of those, uh, some of those proposed ideas for, for serious reform. Six or seven principles you propose that our society, you feel, should use. What are some of the most important ones? Yeah, I'd say the first principle um, that we need to be very serious about is the idea of uh, prioritizing work as the uh, fundamental goal of the system. So, you know, I described earlier, and you kind of pushed back, uh, that for men especially, our identity is shaped by our work. Our identity is rewarded to us as a consequence of our, uh, our, our work. So if that's true, which all the literature shows it to be true. Well, and Josh Hawley would are, agree. Yeah, well, well, yeah, so Josh is, uh, Senator Hawley's made himself kind of a, a little bit of a whipping boy, but I actually agree with what he's been saying, which is that... Um, you know, there is something unique and special and valuable about men in society. 
And one of the things that's unique about men in society is that, and by the way, obviously there's a lot of things that are special and unique about women in society. Yeah, you I should love tell women. my ex-wife my... that. Ah, that's funny. I, I love my wife. I love my daughter. I respect women. Um, but men and women are different, you know, shockingly. And I guess maybe even that is controversial. But men and women are different. And, and men and women define, uh, derive their identities from different sources. Men derive their identity from their work, and women are able to derive their identity from multiple sources. And uh, so the number one thing we ought to be doing if we're, if we're serious about helping veterans thrive is helping uh, place veterans in jobs, helping them thrive through their work so that they can feel uh, powerful. So you're just saying that we should change the way we approach all of this. Will it be saving yeah. us a lot of money? Won't some people well, suddenly be left set adrift? And I, we have very well, little time. Oh, that's fine. That's fine. I, I, and I'll, I'll keep it short. So it might save money, but the purpose of this book, the purpose of the book Wounding Warriors, available again at WoundingWarriors.com. I was going to tell people. It's okay. I know, I know, but I, I feel like I should tell them too. Um, they'll hear my own voice doing it. Um, so so uh, the... the the, uh, the purpose of the book is to help veterans thrive, not necessarily to save, you know, government budgetary money. But what we can do is spend that money more wisely. Well, you know, you're the co-founder gonna... of the Independence Project, which is a privately funded right. effort to help veterans find jobs to provide for themselves and their families rather than to rely on government checks. Yeah, that's right. And what we discovered through the Independence Project was that veterans who are given incentives to work end up with better physical health, better mental health, and better earnings. You know, what's not to love? Mm. And so what we could do with veterans' benefits is we could prioritize work as the goal, and veterans would have happier, uh, healthier lives and be viewed by society as, as happier and healthier instead of as sicker and poor. And then you've written this book, and my great thanks to you for talking with us on today's show. The book is Wounding Warriors, How Bad Policy is Making Veterans Sicker and Poorer, written by my guest, Daniel M. Gade, and also by journalist Daniel Huang, and it is published by Ballast Books. Thank you so much for being on our show. Great. Thank you. And that brings us to the end of today's show. If you're new to this program, you like what you've been hearing, you can access past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you get your podcasts. And there are links to all of our over 500 past shows at LeonardLopateAtLarge.com. If you'd like to write to me, my email address is LeonardLopate at WBAI.org. As you may have heard, WBAI continues to experience major financial difficulties due to the pandemic, and we are really uh, facing a serious crisis right now. So we are asking anyone who isn't already supporting this station to go online to give to WBAI.org or to call 212-209-2950 right now. That's 212-209-2950. Please do it. You can, any amount will help. It is all tax deductible. So, so why not support the programming that you turn to to learn about the latest important books or documentaries or just a topic that you hadn't thought about this deeply before? Do it for us. Do it for WBAI. Do it for other listeners who aren't currently in a financial position to be able to support community radio. And remember, BAI is supported 100% 
by our listeners. We don't take ads. We don't uh, take uh, other kinds of what they call funding credits. And one very helpful way to contribute is to become a sustaining member of the station, what we call a BAI buddy. That's like $10 a month, $15 a month, whatever is comfortable for you. But however you donate, the important thing is that you take that first step, make the tax-deductible contribution by calling 212-209-2950 or by going online to give to WBAI.org. And please be sure to make the contribution in the name of Leonard Lopate at Large. From all of us at the show, thank you so much. And we hope you'll join us again tomorrow when Trude Pam Allen will discuss her new book that she co-wrote with Robert Allen entitled Reluctant Reformers, Racism and Social Reform Movements. She'll we'll also be joined by the book's editor, Stephen Hyatt. We'll see you then.